Good morning. I am so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful to be with you across the screen. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to preach. I'm Carrie, and I live in West Humboldt Park. I've been here in Chicago for about 10 years. But more importantly, I am married to the amazing Lisa Weiss, and together we have two girls, ages four and two. And actually, exactly three months from today, our son is due to be born on August 24th. And so our life is full. I'm super grateful for that. I would not trade that for the world, even though it has changed our world. For example, for Lisa and I, I can say that our movie intake has decreased dramatically over the last few years. It's like we'll be trying, 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 trying to see a movie, and then all of a sudden the sequel comes out. And that's like being lapped on a track. You just give up. You know, by the time we put the girls down, by the time we put the house back in order, by the time we put our lives back in order, maybe catch up, we grab a snack. It could be 10 or 10.30 at night, and ain't nobody starting a movie at that time. For a while, we gave up. Until fairly recently, we've tried something new. We watch movies in two parts. We'll watch half on Friday and half on Saturday. And what I've noticed is one drawback is that oftentimes movies will hit the crisis point right at the middle. So if it's like a Marvel movie, I mean, Spider-Man in the middle of the movie is stripped of his power, and not only that, but he's injured on top of that like he can't one of his arms and and also he's because he's spider-man he's like in an emotional conflict at the same time and at the same time the villain is rising in power it seems like nothing will stop him and he's got a fleet of a million allies working with him and it's like how will spider-man get out of this and then we have to push stop and go to bed and both lisa and i have confessed to one another that what ends up happening is we get stuck in the crisis. We wake up the next day and we're thinking about Spider-Man. It's like all day Saturday, we're like, how's he going to get out of this? Because we stop the movie right at the heart of the bad news. We stopped it right when we had seen how dire the situation was. And I want to say this morning that that's about where we are at in the book of Romans. You see, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at the situation. We've been looking at the human condition. And what we have seen is the bad news culminating with last week, which Joshua so well articulated that we are imperfect, sinful people. And what that means is that we've rejected God's design for our lives. Whether we had the Ten Commandments memorized or whether we never heard them, Still we choose to go our own way. Still we choose to reject his design. And when we do that, we turn our backs on God. And we live separate from him. We're separated from him. And so that means we're under his judgment. And that's the bad news. And that's not a movie. It's about the thing in life that ultimately matters. But we had to press stop. I love that every message leading up to this point has been infused by grace. But we've also had to press stop right there with the bad news. 
And today what we're going to do is press play once again in the book of Romans. And we're going to see what happens after the crisis. We're going to see that out of the good news. You see, we had to see bad news. If we didn't see the bad news, it'd be like showing up in the middle of a movie. It's hard to know what's going on. We had to see it. But then today, what our passage is going to lay out is the good news. In other words, the gospel. The gospel means good news. And today our passage is famous for laying out the gospel. It's all about the gospel. And so my simple prayer for us this morning is that we would catch a glimpse for the goodness of the good news. That all of us, no matter where we're at, if we've been believing in Jesus for years, if we've been walking with him for decades, or if we are still investigating Jesus, that we would catch a glimpse of the goodness of this good news because we all need it. So what we'll see in our passage today is three different overlapping angles on how good the good news is, on how good the gospel is, which I've tried to characterize with three images. So what we'll see is that the gospel is a gift, and that the gospel is a kiss, and that the gospel is a slice. So I want to invite you to turn to our passage today if you're able. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I invite you to follow along if you're able. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. And I also want to invite you to stand if you're able, right where you're at. While we read from God's Word, Romans 3. Starting in verse 21, it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law Or is God the God of of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You may be seated. So the first angle that we see in this passage today, the first angle on why the good news is so good shows us that the gospel is a gift. In fact, in verse 24, it says explicitly that God has done something for us as a gift. And so today what we'll do in this section is unpack some of the major expressions as a way of unwrapping this gift because we don't want to be like a child who's given an amazing gift and then plays with the box 
we want to appreciate the contents. And so what we'll do is unwrap it by looking at some of these major expressions. The first is the righteousness of God. Verse 21 says that now the righteousness of God has been manifested. And what that means is it's been opened up to us like a gift. It's now visible and accessible in a way like never before. It's it's like a child who, who sees a gift opened up and says, is this for me? That Yes, we can, we can have it. It can be ours like never before, like never before, because now it's apart from the law. And the law, the law is those religious things that we do or look to. So our actions or our background, the things that we do or look to, to try to be right with God. What this is saying is now there is a way to be right with God that doesn't depend on what I do or what I look to. And that is good news because what we've seen so far in the book of Romans is because we have all rejected God. Because we are imperfect sinful people that even when we try to be righteous, We are still unrighteous compared to his righteousness. So this is good news that now, not by our doing, but by our believing, a way has been opened up to us like a gift for us to be right with God. How is this possible? Paul explains a little more further in verse 24 that God did it by justifying us. It's by being justified, it says in verse 24. What does that mean? We have to back up a little bit like Paul does in verse 23 to really fully grasp what this is saying. So, if this is the baseline of our behavior before God, if this is like net zero, there's nothing positive and there's nothing negative, what verse 23 says is that we have all sinned. That's the summary of our lives. That's the summary of human history. And then it says we have fallen short. And in the original language, that's a continuous sense. So it means that we keep falling and 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 keep falling. It's our daily experience. We keep falling short of the glory of God, this way that we were meant to live, reflecting his glory. We keep falling. And added to that context, we know that God is not at net zero. We know that God is not neutral. He's perfectly righteous. And so this is the situation that we are falling, 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 and he is perfectly righteous. So how will we get from here to here? The answer is justification. Being justified. Because being justified means a change in position. It's a change in our status. It's actually a legal term. It's a verdict. And when you think about it, a verdict is an official evaluation. So the judge, this is what makes it scary in court, is that the judge looks at all the evidence and evaluates you and pronounces an official evaluation over your life. So when we are justified, God looks at the evidence. And we'll get to that evidence in just a moment. Put a pin on that. God looks at the evidence 
and then pronounces an official evaluation that we are right with Him. That we are righteous. That we are brought from here to here. Brought to the place that we were made to be. Righteousness means right withness. We are right with God. And what that means is acceptance. The acceptance that we long for. And it says, justified by His grace. And that's an important point because it means that what that evidence is, and we'll get to that in a minute, but it's something that He has done for us, not that we do for ourselves. And I just want to stop there for a moment because this is what This is what I believe all of us need to hear because deep down inside, I believe that all of us are hardwired in our souls. It's deeply ingrained for us to try to justify ourselves. It's self-justification. In other words, trying to save ourselves. And when we live like that, when we operate like that, I actually have a picture of what it looks like in our hearts. This is an early picture of a treadmill. And when you look at that picture, do you notice where it is? It's actually in a prison because the treadmill was originally invented in prison. It was invented in 1817 in prison as a sinister device to punish people. So next time you're on the treadmill, remember that. It is a device for punishment, and yet it's serious. I mean, think about it. Prisoners forced upon a treadmill, kept running and running and running, handcuffed, so to speak, to a treadmill. And I believe that's what it feels like deep down in our souls. Maybe we're not even aware of it because we have just lived our lives this way. But we are handcuffed, so to speak, to a treadmill trying to justify ourselves. You know, if justification is about a legal verdict, then we're saying, here's the evidence from my life. Here, Lord, here's the evidence. Accept me because of this. God, I've I've been a pretty good person. Accept me because of this. God, I, I think my good outweighs my bad. Accept me because of this. God, I've tried to fulfill the Ten Commandments. Accept me because of this. And it keeps us running and running and running and running and running because it never lasts and it's never enough. And it feels like being on a treadmill. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are will give you rest because he gives us rest. And yet, for some of us, for some of us, it matters less what God, how God evaluates us. But because self-justification is so hardwired deep into our souls, we look for that evaluation from others. We're still saying, here, here's the evidence, accept me based on this. I I think of a quote I heard from a sermon years ago that's always stuck with me. It's from Chariots of Fire. And it's an Olympic runner. And he says, at that Olympic track meet, he says, I will look down the track and I will know that I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? 
You see, he's looking to justify himself. He's looking for that sense, I am okay. And I'm pretty sure that most of us listening are not Olympic athletes, and yet we still are trying to win something, which will mean that we are okay. If I can just win that promotion, if I can just win that relationship, if I could just win that financial level, if I can just win that approval, then I be accepted and what happens is that it keeps us handcuffed to a treadmill running and running and running and running as we say someone evaluate me well because that's justification based on our own efforts but when it's based on grace when it's something that God does he says to us this is my evaluation of you and this is the way it will always be. You are from this time forth and forever more righteous in my eyes. You are accepted forever. And when we hear that and when we are reminded of that and when it gets to inside our bones, we can step off the treadmill And do you know what that feels like? It feels like freedom. And that's what the next major expression means in our passage. Redemption in verse 24. Redemption means freedom. Freedom that came at a price. And it says it's redemption in Christ Jesus. It was a price that Christ Jesus paid for us to be free. So what was that price? The next major expression in verse 25 tells us the price that was paid was propitiation. And I am sure, I am sure that probably none of us use that word in our daily conversation. And in fact, a lot of different Bible translations translate this a little bit differently, but but I really think this is the most precise translation of this concept because propitiation is a sacrifice. But it's a specific sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God like we've been talking about in Romans. It turns it away and brings someone as a result to a place of friendship and favor with God. That's what we're talking about, and that's what we need, and that's the price that Jesus paid because he sacrificed his own life. He laid his life down as an offering. And we know that a sacrifice is a substitute. A sacrifice says, I'll stand in your place. That's what was happening in the Old Testament scriptures with animals. The animal would stand in the place of the people, but Jesus said, I will stand at your, in your place. Where? How? It says, by his blood. At the cross. And that's what puts all of this together. You see, at the cross, Jesus was treated as if he sinned our sin. And as a result, we treated as if we lived his life. So that's the evidence that God looks at when he evaluates us. He sees the righteous life of Jesus lived for us by faith. That righteous life is ours. And so that's why God can say, you are 
righteous before me. That's what ties it all together. Jesus is our sacrifice of propitiation. It means we're brought from a place of condemnation to a place of favor and friendship. Some of us, some of us still believe, and I say us, including myself, some of us still believe that at times we have to win God's favor. Even after coming to Jesus, we have to win God's favor. But he's our propitiation. He's won God's favor forever. It's part of the gift. The gospel is a gift. It's it's a gift that means we can be righteous before God. It's a gift that means we can be justified. It's a gift that means we can be set free. It's a gift that means the favor of God forever. And like verse 24 says, it must be received. It's held out to us as a gift. The gospel is a gift. That's what the first angle in this passage shows us about the good news. The second angle is found in verses 25 and 26. And what this angle shows us is that the gospel is a kiss. The gospel is a kiss. (laughs) How is it a kiss? Well, when you think about it, a kiss is a beautiful collision. It's a collision that works. When it doesn't work, it's called a headbutt. But, But the gospel... Is a, is a kiss that works, and it brings something beautiful. So what collided in the gospel? The first thing we see is the righteousness of God. And in particular, what this is speaking about is God's justice. God's justice came down in the gospel. How so? Well, verse 25 explains to us that God passed over former sins. And what that means is that even though we've seen glimpses of God's judgment, He has held back. What it means is that throughout human history and even even the history of our lives, God has held back. He has not immediately and totally punished sin. He has refrained from the full weight of His judgment that's forbearance and yet it raises the question because God upholds the moral order of the universe he's the judge and in fact he tells human judges hey if someone is truly guilty don't let them go unpunished it says in Proverbs 17 15 to acquit the guilty to let them go free The Lord detests this. And so how can he do the same thing? The answer is this. This was to show, and this is a reference back to the cross, because at the cross, as it says in verse 26, God showed himself just. His justice came down in the fact that he punished sin totally. He didn't hold back. But Jesus endured the full weight of God's judgment against sin. And this is where we see at the same time the love of God. Because 26 also says that God is just, but He's the justifier. 
Meaning that in God's justice, he punished sin in his love. He took the punishment himself so that we can be justified. In other words, so that we don't have to take the punishment ourselves. Jesus endured it. See how much God loves us. What does this mean for us? I think it's enough to appreciate it, to marvel in it. But I also think we can apply it. Imagine that you get a Chicago parking ticket. $200. And so you go, you, you write a check, send it off, you see it leave your bank account. It's gone. And then two months later, the city contacts you and says that you have to pay for that exact same ticket. What would you do? You would call them up and say, I ain't paying that ticket. You see, it is not just to ask for double payment. And so listen. Does anyone listening have a past? It could be a distant past or a recent past. And although you've come to Christ, that past still shames you. It still haunts you. And there's a voice that whispers, look, look at that. Look at how dirty you are. And at times, you agree. And so you loathe yourself for it. You feel less than you, you wallow in that. In that moment, if that's you and if that's me, what we're doing is paying for our sin with self-punishment. It's, it's similar to what monks used to do back in the day. When they would sin, they would whip themselves. Imagine that you lived back in the day and someone precious to you became a monk or became a nun. Someone like your parent or, or your child and, and you went to visit them and on your way up the stairs you could hear the muffled screams coming from their room. You could hear the sound of a whip and you open the door and you could see the blood coming off of their back. What would you say to them in that moment? Someone say it. What would you say? You would say you don't have to pay for your sin. Jesus has paid it completely. For anyone and everyone who believes our past, our present, our future, it's all covered. Jesus endured every last ounce. It doesn't mean we take sin flippantly. It doesn't mean we don't repent. We do. I believe in something that Scripture calls godly sorrow, but what makes godly sorrow godly is that it makes us run to the cross and remember the cross and bask in the wonder of that beautiful collision. It's like one poet said, talking about Good Friday, that day turned to night and from that fight sprang salvation's genesis and above the cross in shining light his love and justice kissed. The gospel is a kiss. That's the second angle. And the third angle is found in the final verses of this passage. Verses 27 through 31. And what that angle shows us is that the gospel is a slice. How's it a slice? 
It's a slice of humble pie. In other words, it humbles us. And what these verses show us is that it humbles us in at least two ways. Number one, because it excludes boasting. That's what we see in verses 27 and 28. In those verses, what Paul is saying is that if salvation was based on the law of works, in other words, something that we do or something about our background, then we could pat ourselves on the back. But if it's based on faith, if it's law of faith, then we know it's not because anything that I have done, but because of everything that he has done for me. He's taken care of everything. You know, sometimes we're invited uh, to a dinner party. And oftentimes we'll call the host back and say, oh, I'd love to come. Uh, What can I bring? What can I contribute? And sometimes the host says, Oh, don't bring anything. Bring nothing. Just come with your appetite. You know, all of us are invited to salvation. And some of us are like, oh, salvation, ooh. And we contact God and we say, what can I bring? What can I contribute? And he says to us the same thing. He says, nothing. The only thing you need to bring is your hunger. The only thing you need to bring is your need and your emptiness, and I will fill you. Only the point at which this analogy breaks down is that we actually don't only show up empty-handed. We show up offensive with a big old sin casserole. It's like John Stott said, a major theologian from the 20th century. In essence, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin from which we need to be forgiven. And that's humbling. That's humble pie. The second way the gospel humbles us is because it's available to anyone. It's offered to anyone, and that's what we find in verses 29 and 30. Paul's point in these verses is that regardless of whether you come from a Jewish background or a non-Jewish Gentile background, everyone comes to God the same way through faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that salvation is not reserved for a special kind of person. So let me put it this way. Salvation is not reserved for the people who God saw as spiritually impressive. Salvation is not reserved for the people who first cleaned themselves up. Salvation is not reserved for the people who have everything figured out intellectually. Salvation is not reserved for the people who come from a good moral upbringing. Salvation is for anyone who has faith. It's not reserved for a special kind of person. And so that means if I'm a Christian and my neighbor is not, that doesn't make me superior to him or her. Because imagine yourself back at that dinner party, God's dinner party. There you are. You see your neighbor coming up. And so you say to the person next to you, look, look at that guy. He's not bringing anything. He's got nothing. Look at that sin casserole. Did you say that? No, because the truth is that you brought nothing and you brought nothing and you brought nothing and you brought nothing and I brought nothing. We all come the same way to God with nothing in our hands but our sin. And so that changes the way 
we share Jesus with our neighbor. I believe in being bold witnesses of Jesus. I be, but I believe the best kind of witnesses are the ones who are bold and at the same time believe that they are no better than the person who they are talking to. And that's humble pie in a good way. The gospel is humble pie, and maybe it's a cute image. But I want to say here that it's also a strong barrier. It's often the last barrier that keeps us from crossing the line of faith into a life-saving, life-changing, eternal relationship with God. Because deep down inside of us, so many of us want to be reliant upon ourselves. We want to know that we at least did something. It was at least because I was good enough. There could be many reasons why we want to believe that. It could be because we know that if Jesus has done everything for us, then that means we will owe everything to him and we still want to maintain some measure of control. Or it could be because we've been running from inadequacy, this feeling of inadequacy for all of our lives, trying to present ourselves as having it put together and so admitting our need is terrifying to us. But I want to say today that I am praying that you would be emboldened and enabled to be able to humble yourself and come to God and ask Him to do for you what only God can do for you. That you would come to Him by faith and find that there is true security. That there's true security there and there's true freedom. So that's the note I want to end on today. You know, in every single one of the images that we've gone through, it ends on a note of faith. So the gospel is a gift. In verse 25, to be received by faith. The gospel is a kiss. It says in verse 26 that God is the one who is just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And the gospel is a slice, a slice of humble pie in verse 30 because regardless of your background, anyone and everyone is justified by faith, through faith. This is about the good news that we respond to with faith. So that's what I want to call us to today. Maybe you've been believing for years. And yet today we would see the goodness of the good news and believe that harder in it. Let it just fill all of who we are that we would see this is truly good news. It's a gift. It's a gift that means we are right before God. It means that we are justified, that we can step off that treadmill, that Jesus has won our favor with God, that we can be free. And it's also a, a, a kiss, which means that we don't have to punish ourselves for our sins. And it's also a slice, meaning that we are changed from being boastful to being thankful, joyful people. That is good news. So maybe we renew our faith in that today. Or maybe you have never believed in that. Maybe you are still investigating that. My prayer is that today that you would come to God and say, God, I just come to you. All I come to you is with sin on my hands. And I need you. I, I humble myself and confess that I need what Jesus has done for me. That he died and rose again. I believe it. And because you've done everything for me, I give my all to you. I pray that today would be a day that we respond in faith, with renewed faith, or maybe faith for the first time and embrace the goodness of the good news.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you for what you've done for us. And I pray that you would move in our hearts this day. That this would not just be information, but information that moves us. Information that, re- that moves us to renewed faith or faith for the first time. That we would see and embrace that the good news is truly good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we come before you, Lord, today, and we are so thankful for the goodness of the good news of Jesus. Uh, God, we are just overwhelmed by your kindness, God. We are so aware of our sin casserole, God. We know all the mess and muck that is in that thing. And thank you, Lord, for um, offering us forgiveness, Lord. God, I pray that there would be salvation that rises up in the hearts of some today who are listening, who have yet to put their faith in Jesus. And God, I pray that those who do know you would be uh, ever so encouraged, God, by the new life we have in Jesus. We love you. God, we love you. We love you so much. Oh, thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, uh, wow, today we heard the gospel preached. We sung the gospel And now it's for us to go out this week and live it out. Let's live out that truth. Let's be the hands and feet of Jesus who walk in this redemption, in this justification, in this this position of being right before God because of Jesus. Let's live in light of that as we go out this week. Uh, Before we dismiss, before we we, uh, log off here, um, I want to encourage you all again to connect with our real communities. I want to encourage you all to continue to be generous with your, with your gifts and with your offering. And, and church, we also want to let you know that we're going to be live streaming again next week. We will not be meeting in person. Uh, we will wait for a time where we believe that's best for us as a church family that's, that's wise, that's safe, that, that protects the love of your prayers as we do that. But, uh, but church, still... We're going to continue to do the work of the ministry as, uh, as we go out this week. So God bless you all. I want to leave you with this blessing from Numbers six twenty four to 26, which says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you, church family. We love you. We miss you. We look forward to gathering again. God bless you. Have a great week. Peace.